Father, we thank you for this day. We pray that whatever place we find ourselves in, emotionally, physically, the good news we've heard this week, the really bad news we've heard this week, you know it, Lord, and you know the condition that we come in here. And we pray that you would be the good shepherd to each of us and to us as a church body and meet us and guide us and comfort us and speak to us. We trust you to do it through the power and presence of your spirit. Amen. A few years ago, I realized that I was more of a movie person than a TV person. After watching some TV shows, I figured out what they were doing. Instead of resolving things nicely at the end of an episode, they leave you in suspense. Loose ends are not tied up, and so if you want to find out what happens, you have to come back the next week and watch. Brilliant marketing. So they rope you in this way, and then you end up going through and you watch a whole season, and then sometimes they still don't wrap it up because they want you to come back the next season. I've enjoyed some TV shows, but that really is way too much drama for me. Way too much patience. At the end of a couple of hours, I want to go to bed knowing that the world is right. I want the bad guys to be taken care of. I want the couple who's supposed to fall in love to just go ahead and do it. And I want the hero to prevail. And that's why I prefer movies. They resolve after a couple of hours. And you can have that satisfied feeling of a story with usually a happy ending. But I don't think life follows very well with movies. I think it's a lot more like TV shows. We have all these episodes in life. Some are filled with great joy and and laughter and fun. Others are painful, full of conflict, full of uncertainty. And then still others are somewhere in between, just not a lot going on. They drag on a bit. We get some resolution here and there, but really the story just goes on, episode after episode, season after season, without any definite resolution. Last week, I laid out a theme for our summer that is taken from John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says to his disciples, preparing them for his own departure, he says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In the world you shall have tribulation, hardship, pressure, opposition, but take heart. Be of good cheer, persist in joy, because I have overcome the world. That's a great pithy statement for the Christian as we approach life. It's an honest statement. Jesus is telling us the truth. You're going to have a hard time in the world. Don't be surprised by that. But there's also hope. He says, I've overcome the world. I've had this victory. And so we can persevere in joy through the painful plot lines of life because of this great victory of Jesus. So this summer, we're going to be looking at the Psalms, one of the greatest resources that the people of God possess. And we're going to be asking them these two questions. First, how do we deal well with pain? Because we all have it. And then second, how do we live lives of joy? 
pain and joy. The Psalms are a great resource for both of these and for really everything else that we find in life. One of the tools that the Psalms give us is lament. Helps us deal well with pain. And one way to define lament is this, that it's honestly bringing our pain before God. Honestly bringing our pain before God. The Psalms are full of many different types of lament in many different circumstances. Today we're going to look at a psalm of lament that's particularly useful in those times where things are hard, but we don't know why. When we feel like we're suffering unjustly, because we feel like we've done the right things. It's a prayer for people who think, where are you, God? I've held up my end of the bargain, but you seem absent. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to Psalm 44. I've entitled this sermon, The Plot of Pain. The Plot of Pain. And in order to walk through it, I want to use the elements of plot. Maybe you remember learning about that in some English class, or maybe you're a writer. If you want to put the slide up, for those of you like me, before I looked it up on Google, didn't know this, um, but here they are. Here are the elements. This is kind of how you um, write a story. You start with the exposition, You introduce the characters, the basic situation. Then you have the conflict and the rising action where the story kind of increases in conflict. And then you come to the climax, the peak of the action, the conflict, and then the falling action where it begins to sort of resolve and then finally comes to the resolution. So we're going to take those elements of plot and map them on to Psalm 44 and see if we can help see what's going on in this psalm. You can just leave that up there, Doyle. So first you have the exposition, the setup. And in Psalm 44, um, that would be the first eight verses. Ironically, this psalm doesn't start at all like a psalm of lament. If you know psalms of lament, this is more like a, a song of victory, something that people would say in a great triumphant moment. The psalmist opens by saying, Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. And in verses 2 and 3, he looks back on the story of Israel. He recounts how God was faithful to his people, to the promises that he made. He drove out people from the land so that he could bring his own promised covenant people into their home, which was fulfilling this ancient promise to Abraham. In verse 3, the psalmist says, For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face for you delighted in them. The writer has good theology. He knows that God is the one in charge. He knows that victory comes from him. So that's looking back, the first three verses, celebrating God's faithfulness. Then verse four, he personalizes it for himself. It's not just his ancestors' faith, it's his as well. He makes his own confession of faith. You are my king, O God. And he goes on to apply to himself that same sort of theology of saying, I can't save myself. I know that. My bow will not deliver me. My own strength is not going to cut it. God is the one who takes care of us. And then he wraps up this first part 
in verse 8 where he says, In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. So what do we have? We have this psalm coming from a faith-filled people. They know their Bible stories. They trust God. They know his character. They've made a personal confession of faith. That's our exposition. That's our setup. We've been introduced to the faithful congregation of God. And I bet many of us in this room can relate. We are people who believe that God is good. We are people who believe that God is faithful. We've heard Bible stories. We've heard the sermons. We say, yes, he's my king. I own that for myself. But Beginning in verse 9, the plot thickens. We have our initial conflict and our series of rising actions. The psalmist writes, But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. Could there be a quicker reversal? One verse, he's singing God's praise, and then all of a sudden he brings this serious complaint against God. There's times in my life where this would have seemed really overdramatic. I mean, not even realistic to, to go from praise to lament so fast. But I've actually been in a season lately where I kind of get this. I'm sailing along. I'm having a good week, a good day, whatever. I'm feeling alive, feeling hopeful. And then all of a sudden, boom, out of nowhere, some circumstance comes in and I go immediately from praise to lament, from thanking God to complaining to God. Well, in their case, it seems that it was a military defeat, a major military defeat that was causing the painful circumstance for them. But their pain wasn't just losing the battle. It was all of the horrible consequences that came about from that. And he lists some of those. People have been killed. There's been a loss of life on a large scale. People have been sold into slavery and taken to foreign nations as exile, the, the scattering of the people of God. And I mean, that's hard for anyone, but if you understand sort of the mindset of the Old Testament, they've been brought to the home, brought to their land. Anytime they voluntarily or involuntarily leave the land, that's a huge thing in their psyche. So they've been taken away from the land. And now the other nations are mocking them. And the result of all that hardship, verse 15, is that they're covered in shame. The painful circumstances are no longer just external. They've come into the soul. Their identity is being reformed around the pain. It's one thing to lose your job. That's hard. It's another thing to persist in that to the point where you say, I'm not valuable. I'm not employable. That's shame. That's when it comes on the inside. That's identity. It's one thing to have a difficult season as a parent. It's pretty normal. It's another thing to say, I'm a bad mom. I'm a terrible dad. That's when the pain begins to come into the soul. It's one thing to walk through a divorce. And there's unthinkable pain in that. It's another thing to have that begin to reshape who you think you are. I'm a divorced person. If we stay in painful circumstances long enough, it's pretty hard to keep them out of our souls. Most of us carry some sort of shame 
from an experience or experiences of pain that we've had. It gets into the inside of us. We feel that disgrace. Our identity begins to reshape and form in some way around the struggles that we have. And then what makes this even worse, even more intense, is that we live in a worldly culture, the the visible things, and we're in the midst of a spiritual struggle, the invisible things, that's full of accusation. Constantly, there are messages of accusation. And the psalmist says this, verse 16, he attributes his shame to the sound of the taunter and the reviler. So even if we were able to get our heads clear for a moment and remember the truth and remember who we are and remember, yes, but I'm loved, then again there come those waves and waves of accusations pushing us back into shame. And so that's the nature of the conflict that the psalmist, that the the nation of Israel found themselves in, defeat, death, exile, but worst of all, I think, is the shame, the psychological effect of that. They believed what their circumstances and their accusers said about them. This is a people who has good theology, right? Verses 1 through 8, that's what we learn. They trust God, they know his character, they know salvation. And so what conclusions does the psalmist make about his present pain? Surprising what comes out of his mouth. Verses 10 through 14, every sentence starts with you, and he's referring to God. It reads like an accusation. You made us turn back from the foe. You made us like sheep for the slaughter. You have sold your people for a trifle. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. Literally, that last one reads, a shaking of the head among the peoples. People just going like this as they see the place that the people of God are in. Do you feel a tension in that? Do you feel this this rising action? Surely somebody with good theology wouldn't say those things. It sounds like they're saying, this is all your fault, God. But we know that there is no fault in God. Not only is he morally perfect, but he's perfectly loving. God is love. That's right at the core of our faith. We trust him because he's good. And yet all these bad things are happening and they can't all be explained. And so what do we do? How do we resolve our faith in this loving, good father who's all powerful, who's totally in control, who wants the best things for us? How do we resolve that with the circumstances that we all have in the seasons of life that are just painful? Well, that brings us to the third part, right up to the tip, the climax of the plot of pain. And I think we see the climax in verses 17 through 22. Listen to what the psalmist says. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. If this was a TV show, I don't know if the character would say those lines with a broken heart or with anger shaking his fist at heaven. Maybe some of both. Do you hear what he's saying? This isn't our fault. 
this painful circumstance is not because we did something wrong. Now, the Psalms knows very well that a lot of pain in life is because of our sin. The Bible is not um, ignorant of that fact. The Psalms are not ignorant of that fact. We're going to look at one next week that says, it is my fault. I screwed up royally. But in this Psalm, the people are saying, we were faithful. We did not worship idols. We did not forget your name. If we had been harboring evil thoughts, you would have known it. We trusted in you, God. And yet you covered us with the shadow of death. You broke us. Now we can split theological hairs, especially in light of the New Testament, and say, well, of course they were doing something wrong. No one is righteous, not one. They probably had idols that they didn't even know of, and that's why they're in pain. And a lot of time, that's what we do as Christians. We, we don't really know why, but we just say to ourselves, well, I'm sure it's my fault somehow. And so we join in, and we add our own accusation, self-accusation to the chorus of accusations, and we just compound the shame. While it's true, we are all morally flawed. No one is perfect. I don't think we can always explain our pain by just assuming that it's our fault. And that's the lesson of the book of Job. In search of answers for his suffering, it was very clear to Job that his pain wasn't his fault. His buddies thought it was. That's the only theology of pain they had. If you're suffering, they said to Job, you must be doing something wrong. You must have sinned in some way. But Job knew in his gut that his suffering had to be explained in another way. And in case we just think that's an Old Testament thing, Jesus does something similar in the New Testament. John chapter 9, he and the disciples walking by, they see a man born blind. And the disciples simply conclude, somebody sinned for that man to be in that condition. And so they asked Jesus, who was it, that man or his parents? Somebody's at fault. And what does Jesus say? Neither. That's not the reason for his pain. Now, it's really hard to know when we're in the midst of some circumstance, is this the result of something I'm doing, some sin in my life, or is it not? And so we need to be open to the Lord's rebuke. We need to receive his correction We need to seek godly counsel. We can't always see it ourselves. We need the voice of others. We need to pray and search the scriptures. And sometimes he'll show us. He'll say, actually it is this this place in your life and you can repent of that. But other times, like the writer of Psalm 44, we can say, all this has come upon us. Though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. That's the climax. That's the high point of having all these challenges and saying, but we don't get it because it's not our fault. We didn't step out of line. And so we come to the fourth part of the plot, which is the falling action. Things are supposed to begin to resolve here. The conflict should start to decrease as we move towards the end. But again, life is a lot more like a TV show than it is a movie. And so even here, the falling action might surprise us a bit. It might not bring that happy feeling as much. 
verses 23 through 26, the psalmist cries out after all this complaint, pouring his heart out to God. This is how he concludes. He says, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. You see, what we would expect in response to the conflict and the climax is that the psalmist would take those first eight verses, that good theology, and just apply it here. And we'd have this nice package thing. Start with the faithfulness of God, talk about some pain and some struggle, and end with an affirmation of the faithfulness of God. That would be a nice, wrapped-up, fitting conclusion. And that's often what we do with our pain as Christians. We have pretty good theology when we're trying to be faithful, we're trying to respect God, and so we say to ourselves, yes, but God is good all the time, or God works all things for good, Romans 8, 28. And I think this is often the right response. I'm not criticizing that. To affirm our faith in the goodness of God in painful times is important. It fuels our hope, helps us keep going. And there are a lot of passages in Scripture and the Psalms that, that really do follow that pattern when they talk about struggle and then reaffirm faith in God's goodness. But Psalm 44 is not one of those. And other Psalms like it don't follow that pattern. They don't wrap up things nicely with this affirmation of God's goodness. Now, they do not deny His goodness, and that's important to realize. Rather, what they're doing is giving space for the people of God to pray directly to God our felt experience. The psalmist is addressing his complaint to God with an honesty that may make a lot of us uncomfortable. And he does so in accordance with how he feels. That doesn't mean his feelings are the accurate depiction of reality, but his feelings are real to him. And so he says things like, God it feels like you're asleep at the wheel. Has anyone ever felt that? Do you see what's happening in my life right now, God? Where are you? Can you relate to that? Why are you playing hide and seek? Wake up. I'm dying here. Please help me. And I wonder how often we allow ourselves to be that honest with God. I'm not entirely comfortable with it. It's just It feels really raw. And I worry that I'll offend God in some way. I'd much rather, rather just point the finger at myself or somebody else rather than addressing my complaint to God. I'd much rather just remind myself that, you know, it, it's facts and then feelings and, and feelings and we kind of push those aside and let's just stay focused on the facts. That's not what the psalmist does. So on the one hand, we have our addressing our complaint to God. On the other one, um, it doesn't feel like it totally wraps it up. It doesn't feel like that really resolves things in the way that we want. And yet I want to suggest that lament is actually one of the best resources for pain that we have. It's one of the most healing things that we can do with our struggles. And not only that, but lament demonstrates a very good theology. 
We may feel uncomfortable saying to God, you allow these things to happen. You made us an object of scorn. We may not like saying, wake up, God, don't neglect me, because that feels like a lack of faith. But what's the common thread in this kind of raw lament? It's prayer. Even in this type of honest conversation with God, there's prayer. We're taking our concerns to him. We're talking to him. We're not turning our back on him. We're not giving up on him. Rather, we're getting even closer to him. Maybe the closest we've ever been because now we're really allowing ourselves to be seen. We're not trying to hide our emotions that he already sees anyway. We're letting him see the pain, the confusion, the anger. And then what's the theology that undergirds lament? This is key. It is a profound belief in the sovereignty of God. If the psalmist didn't believe that God was in charge and all-powerful, why would he bother talking to him? Think about if you bought a new car and you came home and it stopped working and you're upset about this. And so you go back to the dealership and you you see the person that initially greeted you and maybe you see the person that, that dealt with you and kind of sold you the car. That's not who you want to talk to. You want to say, no, I want to talk to the sales. No, I want to talk to the owner of this place. I want to bring my complaint to him. Why do we do that? Because we believe that person can get things done. They have control. They can do something. Taking our complaint to God is a belief in his sovereignty in practice. It's saying, you're the only one who can fix this. But a lot of times I think we we treat God in prayer like a kind and empathetic grandparent. Someone to sit with us, to share our heartbreak, and they can be a listening ear and can give some sage advice, but they have absolutely no power to do anything. Psalmist knows a very different kind of God. And that's why he laments. Because God is sovereign. Because he believes that God can do something. And then even the accusations of verses 10 through 14, which again can make us really uncomfortable, they still demonstrate a belief in God's sovereignty. You made us the taunt of our neighbors. You are responsible for this. Now, it would be a whole other sermon or series of sermons to understand God and pain and evil and how all those things work together. We may not like the idea that God was involved in our pain somehow, either by allowing it because he's sovereign or sometimes directly causing it. We don't like that. But I would much rather pray to a God like that than to pray to a God whose hands are tied, who can't do anything and who is in no way involved in our pain. What does that mean? If God's not responsible at all, if he's sort of sitting back saying, I'm so sorry for you, that means that we're at the mercy of other powers that are not God. So friends, we have this choice. What do we want to do with our pain? What do we want to do with the experiences of shame that we have? We can stuff them, and we can do that in this nice religious way, but that doesn't really work very well. Two things will happen. It'll either explode out of you, Or it'll stay in you, but it'll eat you away from the inside. Or we can affirm the goodness of God and move on. Sometimes that is the right response. Sometimes God will give us that defiant, hopeful kind of faith. But much of the time, I think God is inviting us to be more honest with him. 
He's inviting us. His office door is open, if you will. And he's saying, come in, bring your complaint to me. That's why he's given us Psalm 44 and others like it. It's the word of God given to us so that we can pray back to him. It's honest, it's raw, it makes us uncomfortable, and yet I think it can lead to profound healing and relief for pain. And so we come now to the resolution, the last part of our elements of plot. In some ways, there doesn't seem to be a resolution. The psalmist ends with a plea for help. If this were some sort of TV show, the words would come up on the screen to be continued. But I think we see a beginning to a resolution right in the end of the psalm, and it's a powerful one. It's actually the very last word where he says, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Some translations say your unfailing love or your loving kindness. It's the Hebrew word chesed. It's one of the most important words in the Old Testament. It captures the the essence of God's character, of his posture towards us, his people. In her children's Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones translates chesed as God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It rolls off your tongue. It's a wonderful translation. You see, friends, the psalmist knows God's chesed. He knows that steadfast love. And so the resolution of the psalm is an appeal to that central part of God's character. Because in his present pain, he's not experiencing the reality of God's love, but he hasn't stopped believing that it's true. And so he's going to appeal to God to act according to the love and to redeem us, to intercede in our lives. It's a bold prayer, but it's a good prayer. I said that was the beginning of, of a resolution. The final resolution for that plot of pain that we see in Psalm 44 doesn't come for hundreds and hundreds of years. The psalmist is long gone before his heartfelt prayer is answered. Romans 8 verses 31 through 39 is arguably the greatest words about God's love in the whole Bible. It's a commentary on the Hebrew concept of chesed, as it was fulfilled in Christ. This is a passage where Paul declares, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he lists all those bad circumstances that we heard Scott and Eric read, and he concludes that nothing, nothing can separate us. No pain, no shame, not even death can take us away from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right in the middle of Psalm of Romans 8, do you know what psalm that Paul quotes? 44. And we might expect him to go into those confident, faith-filled verses 1 through 8 and and to pull some triumphant thing there and to stick it into Romans 8 to add to that feeling, but that's not where he goes. No, he goes into Psalm 44. He takes probably the most painful verse, verse 22, where the psalmist cries out, yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. When the psalmist prayed that, it was with anguish. It was with pain. He's saying it's because of you, God, that we are being slaughtered. It's for your sake. But Paul, having experienced now the the fullness of God's chesed, which is the, the answer of that last cry of Psalm 44, 
he uses those words in a completely different way. He quotes the the verse about being slaughtered like sheep. He's applying it to he and his companions as they are facing persecution for Christ. And then right after he quotes that, he says, verse 37, Romans 8, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through him who loved us. God resolves the prayer of Psalm 44 through the cross of Jesus Christ. He redeems his people for the sake of his steadfast love. And now even the worst tragedies are completely inverted. In defeat, we are conquerors. In death, we find life. In pain, we find healing by the love of God. So I wonder what the episodes of your life look like right now. Maybe they are full of joy and laughter. Maybe it's like a sitcom. But maybe it's full of a lot of pain, a lot of unresolved pain, a lot of circumstances that just aren't wrapping up in the way that you would like. And if that's the place you're in, I would encourage you to lament it honestly to our God because he and he alone is the one who can resolve it by his great love. Let's pray.